parades. You know, there's one where you put a loony and a toony in. And so they used to love that thing. So one time, I can remember going to those rides, even though they cost maybe a quarter back then, they're about $2 million now. But on one occasion, go to the mall, my children would get off the parking lot, go down the ramp, they see the mechanical ride. It's bright, it's yellow, it's got music, it's got flashing lights. Of course, they're gonna attract my children. But my children both start to beg and plead, Daddy, can we go on this ride? And as a loving father, I say, no. <laughs> it's no, you know, if you, for those who have children, who have, you have witnessed this mayhem, the children will then up their game in the pleading and the begging, because they won't accept your no. It's so like, Daddy, we want to go on this ride, and I keep pushing back, and I up my game, and I say, Daddy says no. And then the tears come, and I start cry, crying and wailing. Have you got to that point? I have to take my glasses just to show you, but you get to that point where the kid in public, in front of everyone, in front of the machine, they start going, like, you know, like, just like, come on! So what you do as a father, or what I try to do at my best is I get down on my knees and I tell them gently, kids, let's do our shopping first. Let's go have lunch. And I promise once we do those things, we'll end the trip with this ride. And after making the, the promise, you wipe the the, the tears of the kids' face, and they're starting to calm down. We go on our way. And we do, what we do is window shop, whether that's an actual thing, who knows. But as the journey went on, we had a great time, you know, window shopping and, and, and having lunch together. But the time it was said and done, hours go by. But the time it was said and done, the kids had completely forgotten about the ride. The memory of them crying was a distant memory. The mechanical ride was so far removed from their scope of life, even as we're heading back towards the car. But at this time, right as we got to the car, I remembered the promise I had made to them. And even though they had forgotten, we turned right back inside. And as we were walking back inside the mall, I reminded the children about the promise I had made to them. Yes, I paid the $2 million for the 30-second ride, and then thought to myself, what a waste of time. But seriously, I thought to myself, I hope the children remember that their father always keeps his promise, even when they forget. I know that when most of us come to a genealogy like this, where it's just name after name after name, we lose interest, we skip over those parts of the Bible, can I encourage us to stay in it? Because as we go through the names, God the Father is reminding us that he keeps every promise even when his children forget. So there are three points I want to make in today's passage. And the three points are, a unique family, a unique son, a unique savior, okay? 
a unique family, a unique son, a unique savior. So let's go to verse one, a unique family. And it starts off, Matthew starts off with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this gospel that's named after its author, Matthew, Matthew, for what you need to know about the context, is a, was a tax collector, which is equivalent to working for the Ca- uh, Canadian Revenue Service Agency, which means we don't like him. In the time of Jesus, tax collectors were really despised because the Jewish tax collectors, like Matthew, they collected on behalf of the Roman Empire. But what they also did when they were collecting money from the Jewish people for the Roman Empire, they would keep some money for themselves. But we know with Matthew, the one who authors this, gives up his entire life and his entire fortune to follow Jesus. Matthew's introduction, if you look at his introduction, chapter one, it's unlike the other gospels. It's not like Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew has a very particular audience in mind. So his audience from start to finish is the Jewish people. That's his audience. With the gospel of Luke, if you look at the gospel of Luke, in chapter three is where he starts his genealogy of Jesus. Bible scholars... Those are just guys with big fat heads. They believe that Luke, his genealogy is on Mary's, Jesus' mother's side, her family line, where Matthew goes on Joseph, um, you know, Jesus' earthly father, his bloodline. That's the two distinctions. Luke starts the genealogy as most people would. If you and I were to start our family tree or family heritage or family bloodline, who would you start with? You would start with you. And that's exactly what Luke does. And then he works backwards. But Matthew goes in the complete opposite direction. But for good reason. So the first word I would encourage you in your Bibles to highlight is the word genealogy. Because the word here in the Greek translated means Genesis. So for Matthew, a Jew, to writing to an audience that was Jewish and then saying the word Genesis, the very first thought for a Jew is the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. They would have thought of that. They would have thought about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Matthew reminds his readers of the beginning of the world. But now, more importantly, the beginning of the Jewish Messiah. When Matthew uses the word Genesis here, there is a reference to Adam, because that's the beginning of humanity. See, Matthew's Jewish audience, as they were reading this, if they they didn't see Jewish as their savior, if they didn't see Jesus as their savior, they would have no problem with Jesus being human. That doesn't bother them. They would agree with Matthew. The thing that gets them most is that they don't know and believe and don't have the evidence that Jesus is a true Jew. Matthew knows this and wants to prove to the Jewish audience that Jesus' bloodline can be traced back to the father of the Jews, Abraham. 
the Jews considered Abraham to be the father of the Jewish nation. It's Abraham who first receives God's promise from God himself. That through Abraham's offspring, this is the promise, through Abraham's offspring, there will be one that will come and save the entire world. Matthew makes the connection for his readers by proving that Abraham and Jesus are from the same bloodline. Genesis 12 records the first time that God actually meets Abraham. It's the first encounter that they have. Now, what we need to remember here in the context of Genesis 12 in Abraham's story, Abraham is nothing special. There's nothing about him. He's a nomad. He has no land. He has no home. He has no country. He's not wealthy. He has a people group, but they're really small, if not the smallest. And he's not famous, not well-known. No one knows him. But Abraham is the one that God chooses to use and to bless. So remember, there's nothing special about Abraham, but right after the blessing, right after Genesis 12, this beautiful encounter between the God of the creator of the heavens and earth and Abraham, who's completely nothing, you would think that would inspire him to do great things, but in Genesis 12, as it concludes, we find that Abraham goes out to a foreign land and lies about his wife, Sarah, and tells the people that Sarah's not my wife, that's my sister, to save his own life. Genesis 15, if you've never read it, is one of the most, I would say, the most moving pieces in the entire Old Testament. We read in Genesis 15 that Abraham is so worried because the promise was that God would give Abraham a child, offspring, and it hasn't happened yet. Years have gone by. He's starting to become worried and, and paranoid that this is not going to happen. How is God going to keep his promise? Think of it this way. You know, in our day, when there are two parties, uh, we have written contracts, whether it be a phone contract, whether it be uh, you know, leasing of a car, whatever. There's a contract that is written. You signed your life away. Now, if one of those parties breaks the contract, the written contract that you've just signed, if one breaks the contract, what happens? You can take that person to a court of law, you can sue, you can do all these things, correct? There will be a consequence. But in Abraham's time, there was no such thing as a written contract. Everything was done verbally. So, what you would have to do in Old Testament times was you were to act out the consequences if you broke the verbal contract. And that's the point of Genesis 15. We read that Abraham, what he does is, by God's request, he brings all these animals, okay? He brings a list of animals that God has requested. He cuts the animals in half. He splits them like this and he lets them bleed out, sort of like a Brazilian barbecue. We are told then Abraham falls asleep and then walks through, God walks through the middle of these animals, these cut animals. What God is acting out here is the consequence of not keeping the verbal contract. 
In other words, God is saying this. God is telling to, saying to Abraham, Abraham, listen, if I do not keep my promise, do to me as you have done to these animals. Cut me in half, bleed me out, leave me to die. But know this, Abraham, I will keep my promise, even if you forget. And what does Abraham, if you look at Genesis 15, what does Abraham contribute to this promise? Nothing. He's asleep the entire time. So going back to the genealogy, Matthew's audience would have read and seen sort of the family connection of Abraham and Jesus. And that's why Matthew calls him, that is Jesus, the son of Abraham. But there is also the connection that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. Then even after all these generations that you've forgotten about the promises of God, He's Jesus, the fulfillment, the offspring of Abraham. And then Matthew adds, strangely enough, in that within verse 1, that Jesus is also the son of David. I'm not going to spend any time on David because Pastor Ray will go into further detail of that next week. But why does Matthew strategically say that Jesus is the son of David and also the son of Abraham? As I mentioned earlier, the Gospel of Matthew goes through the genealogy of Joseph. Now, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we read and believe that the Virgin Mary became pregnant with Jesus. But what I'm trying to say here is this. Joseph might not be Jesus' biological father, but Joseph is Jesus' legal father. Before and during this Christmas season, you will see this particular Bible verse. If you open up, please open up with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. But during the Christmas season, most people will see this Bible verse on Christmas cards, social media, posters, across many church buildings. You'll hear it being said. You'll hear it being preached upon. And it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Every Christmas, you will see it anywhere and everywhere. But did you notice the wording in the passage? The first part says, for to us a child is born, referring to the human and physical birth of Jesus through the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. But then in the second part of chapter 9, verse 6, it adds what? To us a son is given. Why? Can Jesus the son be born and given? Look, the passage in Isaiah is referring to the birth of Jesus, but also the legal adoption of Jesus into the family of his legal father, Joseph. This is important because both Mary and Joseph can trace their bloodline, both mother and father can trace their bloodline back to King David. It's important because it was predicted hundreds of years ago that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one would be a descendant of King David, 
So both lines cover that for Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, I'm not going to go there, but there's a very small but important detail. All the Jewish leaders, all the Pharisees, all the priests who were at the synagogue, they knew that Jesus' earthly father was Joseph. They knew this. They don't question him on it. They all knew that Joseph descended from the line of King David. All the Jewish leaders have access to the records, all the genealogies. Why? Because it's in the temple. So they knew Jesus was a descendant from Joseph all the way to King David, from his legal father and earthly mother. Because you see, if it were not true, all they had to do was go to the temple, look up the record and say, Jesus, you're lying. Matthew, you're lying. But it's true. So just in verse 1, we find that Jesus has a human origin story because of his connection to Adam. Jesus has a covenant, like a promise origin story because of his connection to Abraham. And Jesus has a royal origin story because of his connection to King David. And that completes verse 1. But what I want to do now is go through some of the other names that the Gospel of Matthew lists to remind us of how unique Jesus' family is. In verse 2, right after, the, right after the Abraham whole thing, in verse 2 it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob and the father of Judah and his brothers and, and so on. So we know that Isaac comes into the picture now. The promise, the offspring is there. He's introduced. An interesting part, an interesting part of Isaac's story, besides his name meaning he laughs, is found in Genesis chapter 24. We read in Genesis chapter 24 that Abraham makes his servant. So Abraham calls his servant and says, hey, promise me you're going to find me, find my son, Isaac, a wife. The servant keeps that promise by putting, the Bible says, uh, his hand, the servant's hand, under Abraham's thigh. But the truth is, if you were to translate that in Hebrew, it actually means something completely different. It actually means that the servant puts his hand on Abraham's regions. If you don't know what I'm saying, Good for you. <laughs> Abraham's servant was putting Abraham's ability to father a child on the line. This is, this is big. This is actually important and very significant for the Bible to add that. Isaac, by the time he was 40, ended up marrying Rebekah, his cousin. In Genesis 26, God reminds Isaac of the promise why? Why does God continue to remind? Because the people continue to forget. So God reminds Isaac in Genesis 26 of the promise he made to his father right after, again, right after this amazing experience between God and Isaac and the reminder of the promise, Isaac commits the same, the exact same lie as his father, which is lying about his wife telling people that that's not my wife, that's my sister, to save his own life. Isaac, we know, has twins. But if you look at the genealogy in chapter 1, verse 2, 
Matthew only mentions Jacob. For those who missed out, we've had a series on this called Out Hustled. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. We know from the account recorded in Genesis chapter 27, the older brother should have received the blessing, but it's Jacob, the deceiver, the liar, who cheats his way into receiving the blessing. He gets it. That's why he's named. It is then later recorded in Genesis 28 that Jacob is reminded by God of the promises he made to his grandfather and father. So once again, God repeats because the people repeatedly forget. And then right after that in Genesis 29, we read that Jacob falls in love now with his cousin, Rachel. Jacob is so in love with Rachel that he promises his uncle that he will work for his uncle for seven years, which is the same requirement if anyone wants to date my daughter. (laughs) After the seven years... And the Bible records that it flies by for Jacob. The seven years just go quick. At the night of the wedding, as in the night in the bedroom, you find out, if you don't even believe me, you got to read it. The uncle that he's worked for seven years switches daughters. Instead of Rachel that's in the bedroom, it's Leah in the bedroom instead. How Jacob does not know who is in the bedroom, I have no idea. So Jacob, the deceiver, who's deceived to get the blessing, he has been now deceived by his uncle. And we find out through scripture, he works another seven years to marry the woman woman of his dreams, Rachel. This means that Jacob ends up marrying sisters. Laura has sisters, but no. We know from the Genesis account, because it's recorded very clearly that Jacob, who has ended up marrying Leah and Rachel, the, twi- the, the sisters, all throughout his life has a really difficult time. The family's in constant turmoil. To his death, it's so bad because he makes it very clear and very evident who his favorite wife is, and it crushes the family. Then in Genesis 35, we read that once again, God reminds Jacob of the promise he once made to the whole family. Why? Because the family forgets the promise. And then last of all, God changed Jacob's name to Israel because God no longer wanted Jacob's name, deceiver, He didn't want that that past to define him no longer. It's not about your past anymore. It's about your future. And your future will be known as Israel, which translates to God fights. And that's because Jacob had admitted his guilt and ultimately his dependence on God. So back to the genealogy at the end of verse 2. Matthew mentions Jacob's Fourth son, which is intriguing, fourth son. Even though we know Jacob had 12. He had 12 sons and all were blessed. But for some reason, Matthew puts Judah 
And Judah's one of the brothers who sell Joseph, the brother, into slavery. Why does Matthew include Judah, the fourth son? I have no idea. But here's the interesting part about Judah. Judah has three sons. The first son marries a woman named Tamar, who's right here in the genealogy. The first son is killed by God for being so evil. So what happens in Jewish custom is if the first son dies, the second son needs to take up the mantle, take up the duty of the first son. So the first son dies, the second son comes in and marries the wife, his sister-in-law. So the second son does that. He does his right duty and marries Tamar. He is so evil. The Bible records God kills him too. Then the third son is called to marry Tamar as well. The third son refuses. He says, uh-uh. And the father and son actually begin to be suspicious and think, man, this Tamar girl is weird. Everyone who marries her dies. So Judah, right after this incident, we are told, it moves quite quickly in the story. So Judah, the father, his wife dies. And in mourning, he's crushed, he's brokenhearted. He actually leaves his homeland. He leaves to escape, to get away, to be in his own. Tamar, for some reason, his daughter-in-law, hears that her father-in-law has gone to this faraway, faraway land. And she goes with him, but he doesn't know. She follows. It's all recorded, if you don't believe me, in Genesis 38. It gets worse. Tamar then disguises herself. She puts a veil over her face. She pretends to be a prostitute. Judah ends up unknowingly sleeping with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and she becomes pregnant with twins, Perez and Zira, which are in the genealogy that we are reading today. Matthew includes them both. Why would God include Tamar in the genealogy? We're going to answer that in a minute. But very quickly, Matthew's uh, genealogy is not exhaustive, okay? But I'll sort of conclude with where he sort of concludes was with, with Rahab and with Ruth. Rahab's story is first recorded in the book of Joshua chapter 2. We are told that Israel, who doesn't have their land, but one of their promises that they will receive is, you're going to have a land of your own. So we are told that Joshua sends out two Israeli spies, two Jewish spies, to check out the land of Jericho to see if this is the land we're going to take over. Somehow, we don't know how, but somehow the king of Jericho, the land that they're looking to occupy, finds out that there are spies in the land. So the two spies end up hiding in Rahab's house, who's here in the genealogy. But we know in Joshua that Rahab is a prostitute. Rahab hides the spies. She protects the spies and gets them, eventually gets them out of the city. But she asks the spies for one thing. She goes, here, if I save you, if I help you, can you help me? And said, sure, what is it? She says, would you save me and my family? They said, sure, you get us out, we'll save you. 
But this is the one thing you must do. On the day when we come and conquer all of Jericho and take over the whole land, you've got to do one thing, and here's the one thing. You have to tie a red cord out your window. This is what we call typology. It's referencing the blood of Jesus saving his people. So finally we have Ruth, and her story is recorded in the book named after her, which is Ruth. Now Ruth we know is a Moabite. Moabites were looked down, looked down upon because of how they came to be. The story, the original story of the Moabites actually begins in Genesis chapter 19. We read that there's a guy named Lot. He's Abraham's cousin. He was living in Sodom. Sodom, the Bible records, was so evil, God threatened to destroy it, sort of like Australia. <laughs> God was going to destroy Sodom, because, but because of God's great mercy, he gave Lot, Abraham's cousin, and his family a chance to escape. In the story it goes, Lot and his wife and his two daughters, as they escape, they are warned, hey, don't, don't turn back and look at the destruction of the city. But we find out Lot's wife turns and looks at the city. The destruction of the city, she turns to a pillar of salt. She doesn't make it. She dies. So only Lot and his two daughters escape, and they make it into a cave. So now Lot and the two daughters are alone in the cave. If you read the passage, Lot's daughters believe that all men in the world are dead. Amen. <laughs> and they also know that their mother is dead. So they think to themselves, like I said, if you don't believe me, you read it. They think to themselves, how is a new nation to be born? This is what they decide. They decided to get their father so drunk that they would sleep with him. So on the first night, they get him so drunk that they sleep with him. The next night, if you haven't learned your lesson, he gets drunk again. And Lot sleeps with his second daughter, and she becomes pregnant. Both daughters get, got pregnant, and that's how the Moabites came to be. This is their heritage. This is Ruth's heritage. But reminder, this is also Jesus' heritage. Jesus' family heritage is so broken, so messed up, so unique. His family members, all of them are included, and it's revealed for all to see. There's nothing to hide. And all this should give us hope. You see, the woman included, even though there's, there's more than three here, but the three that we've read out, there are three women included in the genealogy of Jesus, and all were Gentiles. That's why they're there. They were non-Jews. They were non-believers. They married in. They were not born Jewish. For the rest of us, it's really about God's grace that he would include us into his family for people like you and me. We are included into Jesus' family. You know what that means? That means nothing can take us out. 
But my question is, is your family anything like mine? I want to make it very clear. I'm talking about my family, not my wife's side of the family, my family. On my side of the family, we have multiple divorces. On my side of the family, I have uncles and aunties who haven't spoken to each other in years, and I know that they will not talk to each other until the day they die. I have uncles and aunties who have called the police on each other. I have an uncle who's been in prison for 20 years and haven't seen him since I was a child. I had a grandmother who despised her grandson so much she chose not to speak to him. That's my family. And that's just a small glimpse. But my question is, what about your family? Or is your, if that's too extreme for you, is your family like mine still? Is your family like mine that we put in our Sunday best? You put that smile on your face that everything's perfect, your children are perfect, life's perfect, work's perfect, there's no care in the world, and you go in here and you judge people? Is that what we do? Because we're gonna put on that face, right? Because we don't wanna be judged. So let's all keep pretending that everything's okay. But you and I know who. All our family bloodlines are completely broken and shattered. My children, even though they are the ages of seven to five, they're really fascinated about my past. Especially in particular, my ex-girlfriends. They always ask me about my ex-girlfriends. I say, your mother's here, are you crazy? <laughs> but the one thing they push me on is, for those who don't know my story, yes, I spent time in prison. They, want, they don't care about what I did in prison. They have no concept of that. They want to know how I got into prison. They're very fascinated. I'm still trying to explain it to them. And so I would go on to tell my children, hey, I sold drugs for a living. And they don't have no concept. They don't understand what drugs are. So I have to be a good father and explain even further what that means. And I say, ah, okay, I sold medicine. And they're like, oh, you're like a doctor. <laughs> my point is this. Broken people from broken families, those are the people Jesus calls into a family, into his family. Second point, a unique son. Last Sunday, I was, I was, I was walking from the high school. I parked at the high school here at the parking lot. I happened to bump into an elderly man. Let's, let's call him Dave. Why? Because that's his actual name. Dave started telling me about one of his new hobbies in his retirement. In his retirement, he's, going, he's actually going through his family history and he was sharing with me. He was sharing that he could trace his family back to the 1400s in England. Dave was so excited to share with me about how he can trace one of his relatives to be one of the, he was a mayor of London. 
and that one of his grandparents was in the armed forces of Canada and the other was in the armed forces of Great Britain. And somehow they met and married. Dave comes from this wonderful family heritage and from my short talk with him, you can sort of easily see how this wonderful man came to be, partly because of our fa wonderful family heritage. I could tell that he was deeply inspired by his family history, but you can sort of hear and feel the deep connection. Let's think about my two daughters. If you were to look at my two daughters and consider them beautiful, wonderful, intelligent, kind, loving, then you would all agree they're from Laura's side of the family. <laughs> but they were impatient, angry, harsh, judgmental, critical. You would all agree they're from my side of the family. What am I trying to say? When you look at Jesus' family line, there is nothing, he is nothing like the brokenness that permeates and spreads throughout his family. He remains perfect, untouched, unscathed. Think about it deeply. Family members can look at a child, a newborn child that just gets into the family, a great nephew, a great niece, they enter in the family. And you have this family gathering and everyone looks upon the baby. And grandparents and great-grandparents and great-uncles and great-aunties, they look upon the child and they say, hey, that person looks like, you know, uncle, great-uncle Bob and great-auntie Barbara. And you sort of see similarities and you recognize certain things of how they look but also how they act. You trace things. But in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it tells us about Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What's it saying? He's not like his earthly broken family. He is exactly like his perfect father, 100%. There is no other son. There is no other name. Jesus is the one and only son of God from the Father, born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no one else unscathed. and makes him unique as a son. Lastly, he is a unique savior. We well, have to understand when we read verse one of Matthew chapter one, verse one, 400 years have passed since the last line of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. So Malachi, the very last line to Matthew's first line of what we read, 400 years have passed. 400 years, God hasn't said a single word, complete and utter silence. You know, think about the times when you and family and friends you invite them over to your house, you have a big gathering at your place, or, or at a restaurant, or whatever it is, you invite all the loved ones, because you know you have an announcement to make. And you tell everyone, as everyone's sort of mingling and eating or making noise or whatever it is, you know what you do? You know what you do in those moments? You say, hey guys, be quiet, shh, shh. I've got an announcement to make. Only when there's a silent hush that comes across the room. Then you make your announcement. 
God patiently for 400 years, he waits for complete silence to make his biggest announcement, and that is the announcement of his coming son, Jesus. God's announcement is made clear from the Old Testament to the calling of a son and a promise of a son of an offspring, but also into the New Testament is made clear. In Genesis chapter, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What Paul is saying here is this, that throughout God's announcement in the entire Bible, that every time he said the promise, reminded of the promise, even though the people forgot, he always uses the word offspring in the singular. This is an important distinction to make because God is not saying to Abraham and to us today that there will be many saviors coming from many nations. That's what he's not saying. As wide and diverse as the family of Jesus is, there will not be one savior for the Germans or one savior for the Brazilians or one for the Koreans, the Spanish, the Chinese, the Russians, the Filipinos. What he's saying is there will be one savior for all the nations, for all the nations that ever existed and for the nations that will come into existence. This is why when he comes to almost his conclusions in, in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You're in the family. All people groups are invited into the family of God, and it will be God who will adopt those who call out to him. So my question is, have you called out to him? Are you included in the family of God? But let me conclude with this. I want to conclude with some art on the screen. What you're going to see on the screen is what the Japanese called kintsugi. It is the Japanese art form of taking actually broken pottery and joining the broken pieces back together with gold. Isn't it beautiful? The broken clay or bowl or cup is made even more beautiful than its original form. But church, our world is broken. Our culture is broken. Our country is broken. Our cities are broken. Our family is broken. You and I are broken. The one thing that can put us together and make us more beautiful than in our original form now is the blood of Jesus. But remember, the blood came at a cost. It doesn't come for free. The blood that can repair came at the cost of his life. That even when you forget about the shedding of blood, he remembers and keeps that promise. The truth is, there's too many of you who have tried to put your broken pieces of your life back together. You do it. You try by working harder, making more money, by having more joy in your life, you work, you try, you read the Bible more, you pray more, and it will come to nothing because none of those things will put your life back together. Or in the blood of Jesus. You know, patience doesn't come naturally to me. You know, I've always struggled with it. I've, I think I will struggle with it on some degree for the rest of my life. 
You know, I'm that guy, I'm that Christian guy that demands from God, give me patience now. (laughs) My lack of patience really comes out during Christmas shopping. (laughs) As I head to the mall to pick up the wrong gift for my wife. I'm already stressed. I'm already stressed because I know the parking lot's gonna be full. I'm not gonna find a parking spot. And as I walk through the mall, whether it be Metro Town or whatever, I don't want people touching me. Don't bump into me, don't look at me, just let me head to where I need to get to, let me get there. But I don't like the idea that I have to line up and pay for this thing. And then I don't like it, then when you get to the store, they'll say, sorry, we're sold out. That's why I thank my savior, Amazon. Today, though, I'm still that broken man. But the good news is I have a patient, loving Savior. I'm still that broken man, and we are still those broken pieces from the decisions that we make every day. Those broken pieces are the results of what the Bible calls sin. It is only through the blood of Jesus He broke his body so that you don't have to be left broken. He broke his body for those who realize that they can't put all the pieces back together and who call upon the name of Jesus to save them. That even when you forget, God is saving you. Other saviors will call you to save yourself. Work harder, do more, be good, be nice, smile, be on your best behavior. But Jesus, the unique savior, said that, You cannot save yourself. I can save you. So join my family. Call out to me. Let's pray. Jesus, we call out to you now. We call out to you because you broke your body. You broke your body in half. You shed your blood. You kept your promise even when we forget. And even when in these moments now where we remember, for many of us as we leave these doors, we'll forget. But you will remember. So Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to remember. Help us to celebrate. Thank you. Keep reminding us of the promise that you have kept. And Jesus, as this season, as we celebrate your birth, your incarnation into the world, and we look at this precious, innocent, beautiful baby child, remind us of the goal at the end. That is this innocent child. That the body was broken. That his blood was shed. And Jesus, in this room, I lift up all my brothers and sisters. I lift up their families, their uncles, their aunties, their children, their cousins, their great kids, everyone. Because we're all broken. Some of me feels like more so than others. But we're broken. And we need you to put those pieces back together by the power of your blood. So Jesus, for our family members who are far from you, would you work in them? would they call out to your name and in your name only, Jesus. Amen.
there'll be some reflection questions on the screen.